Well, Merry Christmas, Calvary Bible Church family. It's so fun to see so many of you uh, with some extended family members uh, here with you this morning. I know that's a very joyous time. Also, though, I'm cognizant of the fact that not everyone uh, is able to have family uh, with them this Christmas. Either family could be geographically distant or uh, perhaps you lost a loved one uh, this year or in recent years or uh, with various circumstances of life find yourself celebrating Christmas alone uh, this year. I want to just say to you, you're not celebrating alone. Uh, the Christ who came to save is there for you, with you, and uh, as a church family, we also want to reach out to you. So if you happen to be celebrating Christmas alone this year, I want to encourage you, don't, don't hurry off after the service. Hang around a little bit, and for those of you who have family with you, have your eye open uh, for those who, uh, for various reasons, may be celebrating Christmas alone this year. Reach out to them, give them a hug in the name of Christ. Make sure that uh, we share the, his love uh, with those who are lonely this year. I want to invite you to open to Hebrews chapter 2, and uh, for this Christmas Eve morning message, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, and this is not typically considered a Christmas passage. You know, when people think of kind of the classic Christmas passages, they tend to think of Isaiah chapter 7, which prophesies the virgin birth of the Savior 700 years before it happened. Or you may think of Isaiah chapter 9, which prophesied that a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Again, seven centuries before it occurred. Or you may think of Micah chapter 5, which prophesied that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem centuries before it occurred. Or you may think of the gospel accounts in Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and Luke chapters 1 and 2, which record the glorious details of the Savior's birth. Or you may think of John chapter 1, verse 14, which summarizes the miracle of the incarnation in these beautiful words, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth or you may think of the passage that brother mike read in galatians chapter 4 verse 4 that says when the fullness of the time came god sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Those are the passages that we typically think of at Christmas time, but I really think that you should add Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 18 to your list of classic Christmas passages because these five verses so beautifully describe why Jesus came and why the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ is so very, very important. By the way, if that word incarnation is not familiar to you, it's this description of God taking on human flesh, becoming incarnate or in the flesh. And we'll be talking a lot about that in this message. 
In just five verses, this passage is going to give us 10 reasons why the doctrine, doctrine of the incarnation is so important, why it's so beautiful, why it's so life and world transforming. It's going to give us 10 reasons Jesus came to our world. 10 reasons Jesus came to our world. So read with me in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in the pew racks in front of you. And uh, the book of Hebrews is very near to the end. So just kind of go to the very end. You'll find the book of Revelation. Flip back a couple books and you'll find the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Marvelous Christmas passage, and it's going to give us 10 reasons Jesus came to our world. Now, before we get into those 10 reasons, into our main outline, I want to just give you kind of a brief summary of the surrounding context of this marvelous passage. The preceding context begins with the great declaration at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1 that in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. And Hebrews 1, 2 through 3 goes on to say that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Why does this universe continue to exist moment to moment? Because Jesus upholds it by the word of his power. And then chapter 1 goes on to quote God the Father directly affirming the deity of Christ. Saying in verse 8, and this is God the Father speaking. It says, but of the Son, he, that is God the Father, says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And so here is God the Father's affirmation of the deity of Christ and that he will reign forever and ever. And then God the Father affirms that Jesus is the creator and that he is eternal. Verse 10 says, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. This is speaking, again, God the Father speaking to the Son. In addition, in both chapter 1 and then in chapter 3, the following context for our passage 
there's a comparison that is made. Comparisons are being made between Jesus and the angels in chapter one and then between Jesus and Moses in chapter three. So between the angelic beings and then between the one who was considered at that time to be the greatest man who had ever lived, Moses. And a comparison is made between Jesus and the angels and then Jesus and Moses. The preceding context in chapter one says that Jesus is higher than the angels. In fact, chapter one, verse six, specifically says, let all the angels of God worship him. So Christ is the one whom the angels are commanded to worship. Then the following context in Hebrews chapter three says that Jesus is infinitely greater than Moses because the builder of a house is greater than the house itself. It's an affirmation that Christ created Moses. Chapter three, verse three. For he, that is speaking of Jesus, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Another very powerful affirmation of the deity of Christ. He's higher than Moses because he made Moses and just as the builder of a house has more honor than the house that he builds so Christ has more honor than Moses before he made Moses and the builder of all things is God so chapters one and three come forth with this incredible affirmation of the deity and the supremacy of Christ he is God and he is above all other beings the angels people Moses the greatest of men he is above all as Colossians chapter 1 says he is to have first place in everything so that's the context it's the deity and the supremacy of Christ but right in the middle of these great chapters on the deity and the majesty and the supremacy of Christ there is this beautiful little paragraph about the humanity of Christ and the tenderness of Christ and this is the wonder of Christmas this paragraph tucked in the midst of this anthem to the glory of Christ reminds us of the wonder of Christmas that God the son the creator of all things the one whom the angels worship came to our world and came as a baby born in a stable laid in a manger yesterday visited a family was explaining to the children that the manger is not this cute little box that's in your nativity scene it was in those days a wood a a trough you typically hewn out of stone sometimes made of wood but it was a trough in which feed for livestock was placed so I explained it to the kids this way imagine a giant dog bowl and that's the only place that Christ had to lay his head in his first night on earth this is the wonder of Christmas the creator of all things born in a stable born laying in a manger why did God take on human flesh why did Jesus come to our world I want to 
give you 10 reasons from this chapter. Number one, he came to bridge the gap between God and man by partaking of our nature. He came to bridge the gap between God and man by partaking of our nature. This, by the way, is what distinguishes the true saving biblical gospel from all other religious systems. All religious systems have something in common. It's man trying to bridge the gap between man and God by trying to reach up to God. But the glory of Christmas is a reminder that that gap was bridged not by us reaching up to God, but by God reaching down to man. He came to bridge the gap between God and man by partaking of our nature. Look at verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. The first reason this passage gives for why Jesus came to our world is that he came to partake of our nature. It says that he shares, it says the children share in flesh and blood. And so he partook of the same. I want you to notice that word share, to share in flesh and blood. That's the Greek term which you may have heard of before, koinonia. It's in a verbal form. Koinoneo. And it refers to having fellowship or communion because you share something in common. Something that all people share in common is that they are flesh and blood. And that is something that God did not have in common with us. He, as the Gospel of John says, God is spirit. But since we have this fellowship of sharing in flesh and blood, Christ partook of the same, of flesh and blood. So this verse begins by pointing out that we all have something in common. We have mortal bodies of flesh and blood, and because that is the case, Christ came in order to share in our nature. Christ was motivated to come to our world and to take on flesh in order to share the fellowship, the commonality, that koinonia of having the same thing in common with all human beings, having a body of flesh and blood. He wanted to have fellowship with us. He wanted to have that in common with us. So he partook of human nature. Now the word partook here means to take hold of something that's not naturally of your kind. Christ took hold of something that was not naturally of his kind. Dr. MacArthur comments, quote, we by nature are flesh and blood. Christ was not. Yet he willingly took hold of something which did not naturally belong to him. He added to himself our nature in order that he might die in our place and that we might take hold of the divine nature that did not belong to us. Second Peter 1.4 says that through the work of Christ, we become partakers of the divine nature. Again, this is not us reaching up to God. This is God bridging the gap to man. A little bit of theology for you, so listen carefully. Jesus before the incarnation was one person with one nature, the divine nature. At the incarnation, he added human nature, therefore becoming one person with two natures, 
the fully divine nature of deity and the fully human nature of humanity. Now that is something no one else could do. This is something only God can do. While remaining and always being, he was, is, and will always be, and there's never a moment of time where he ceased to be fully God, he partook of human nature. When Jesus came to this world, he did not lose his divine nature. He is fully God. He didn't lose the divine nature, but he did add human nature, becoming the God-man, the one who is fully God and fully man. Or as Isaiah put it and is affirmed again in Matthew, he is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The doctrine of the incarnation is that Jesus is fully God and fully man, one person with two natures. And Christ, taking on human nature, is vital to our salvation. For it is by the divine and human nature subsisting in the one person of Christ that the inseparable gulf between God and man has been bridged. It is the incarnation of Christ and the incarnation alone which can bridge the gap between God and man. So the first reason Jesus came to this world is to bridge that gap. He who was, is, and will always be fully God partook of flesh and blood that he might save us. The second reason why Jesus came to this world is to die for our sins so that we could be saved. Verse 14 says that he partook of our nature so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Through death. This is how it was accomplished, how our salvation was accomplished, through the death of Christ. Because, as the scripture teaches, the penalty for sin is death, only through death could sin be forgiven. The only way for sinners to be saved is for the price of sin, which is death, to be paid. And in order to die, Christ had to take on human nature, for God cannot die, but human beings die. And so Christ took on flesh and blood so that he might die for our sins. Death was necessary to pay for sin, and Taking on human nature was necessary for Christ to be able to pass through death on our behalf. The third reason why Christ came to this world is to disarm the devil by nullifying his main weapon. Verse 14 says that he partook of flesh and blood so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, which is the devil. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, the thief, he's speaking of the devil, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus says, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to give life, abundant life. The devil kills, steals, and destroys. And Jesus says there are two roads in this life. The broad road, which leads to destruction, and the narrow road, which leads to life. 
And he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. What road are you on? Have you entered through the narrow gate onto the narrow road? And Christ says, I am the gate. Have you received him as Savior? But he came to disarm the devil by nullifying his main weapon, which is death. While God holds ultimate sovereignty over the lifespans of people, the devil wields death as a weapon. And he, as you know, constantly tempts people to do things which cause their death or causes the death of others. He comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But Jesus comes to give life, abundant life. So in order to bring eternal life to sinners, Christ had to disarm the devil by rendering powerless death itself. You know, in order to when you defeat or conquer an enemy, you, the, when they surrender, you disarm them. They are disarmed. Their weapons are nullified or taken away from them. And that's what Christ did on the cross. When Jesus died and then rose again, he broke the power of death. He conquered death, rendering it powerless. And that's how he disarmed the devil. He nullified the devil's primary weapon. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. I don't have to convince you that the devil does work. It's all around you all the time. The misery the wickedness, the harm people cause to other people, these are the works of the devil. And Christ came to disarm the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil. That is why he came. Fourth reason, he came to free the captives from their fear. He came to free those who are captive to fear. Verse 15 says, he came that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He came to free us from the fear of death. The fear of death has been called the king of terrors. All other fears are rooted in this one. Why do we fear venomous snakes, wild animals? Well, it's because of ultimately the fear of death why do we fear heights and viruses and a thousand other things it's because of ultimately the fear of death and this text describes the fear of death as something which enslaves us which binds us which holds us I don't know if you've noticed but it's hard for human beings sometimes even to enjoy even wonderful things and special times like Christmas because we always have this sinking feeling in the back of our minds that this could be the last one. Either for us or for someone we love. We always have this feeling that life is slipping through our fingers. That the clock is ticking down to zero 
And we can never push that fear of death very far from our minds. The fear of death is a fear which binds us. Jesus came to free us from that fear. And how does he free us from the fear of death? He does so by granting us eternal life. By conquering death and giving to us a life which never ends and never can end. Because when by faith we are united with him, we're united with his life. And because he is God, his life can never end. So if you're united with him, you have eternal life. And that frees you from captivity to the fear of death. Fifth reason why Jesus came to this world is to help those who share Abraham's faith. To help those who share Abraham's faith. Verse 16 says, For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. This is interesting. He kind of starts with a negative and then a positive, right? He doesn't give help to angels, but he does give help to the descendant of Abraham. What is this talking about? Well, when you go back to what the rest of the scripture teaches, we're reminded that when Satan rebelled against God, a third of the angels joined that rebellion. They were eternally condemned because of their rebellion. And for the angels, there is no opportunity for salvation. Demons cannot be saved. There is no salvation for them. Notice that Jesus did not take on angelic nature to save the fallen angels. But he did take on human nature to save fallen men. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, Peter says that the gospel are things that the angels long to gaze into. This is referring to the holy angels. The gospel is something so wondrous that the angels are astounded by it. And they long to look into it, to gaze upon it, to understand this grace of God which saves sinners. In our Wednesday night theology class, we briefly talked about this. The holy angels knew personally the angels that followed Satan's rebellion. And those angels, now become demons, cannot be saved. Their former friends are now mortal foes and will be so forever. So the holy angels are astounded. They are amazed that God would send his son to save mankind. Because just like the demons, just like the fallen angels, mankind joined Satan in his rebellion. Satan leads a rebellion and a third of the angels join him and then mankind joins him. So the holy angels are astounded by God's grace towards us. God could have simply left us in our deserved state of condemnation. 
but out of unexplainable and truly wondrous and amazing love and undeserved grace, he sent his only begotten son to die for us in order to save us. This astounds the holy angels and it should astound you. That which astounds the holy angels should definitely astound you for you are the beneficiary of this grace. Christ came to help those who share Abraham's faith. He doesn't give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. What is this phrase, the descendant of Abraham, referring to? Well, those who share Abraham's faith, his faith in the true and living God. The sixth reason why Jesus came to this world is to become man so that he could represent men. Look at verse 17. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I want you to notice those words. He had to be made like his brethren in all things in order to do this. Since it was men who sinned, only a man could pay the price. But since the offense was infinite, only God could pay the required price for all the sins of all people of all time everywhere. So as our text puts it, Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things. This was the only way. Only a human being could pay the price for sin for human beings but only God could make an infinite sacrifice to pay for all the sins of all the people of all time. And so this was the only way. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. If you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays to the Father and he says, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is saying, Father, if there is any other way that sinners can be saved, then let the cross pass me by. But if it's the only way, then not what I will, your will be done. There was no other way. As this verse says, Jesus had to take on flesh and blood. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. And he had to die the death that mankind deserves it. You deserve that I deserve. He came that first Christmas because it was the only way we could be saved. That's why he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. You are either united with Christ by faith or you are eternally lost. What is the status of your soul? The seventh reason why Jesus came to this world is to become a merciful and faithful high priest. Verse 17 so beautifully says, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now this is taking us back to remind us a little bit of the Old Testament the role of the Old Testament priest was to offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. 
And only the priests and only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and the high priest could only enter once a year. If you lived under the Old Covenant, you could only offer God sacrifices and offerings through a priest. You could not enter the Holy of Holies yourself. Someone else had to do it on your behalf. And so the priests had a very important function and they also had, as you can imagine, a lot of power. In the Old Testament, the priests were supposed to be merciful. They were supposed to be faithful. But sadly, as often is the case, when human beings have power, power corrupts them. If the priests became corrupt or uncaring, they could extort the people or simply turn them away. And we see throughout the Old Testament that at times in which the nation drifted from God, when they were in disobedience to his word, it usually began with the corruption of the priests. And the people suffered at the hands of uncaring and unscrupulous priests. This was especially the case at the time in which Jesus came. If you remember, one of the things he did is he comes into the temple and he starts literally throwing people out, physically throwing people out. He grabs a whip to drive them out, throwing over their tables because the money changers and all that were extorting the people. This was a system of religious corruption where they had taken the things of God and turned them into a way to con the people, to bilk the people, to extort the people, to oppress the people. And the high priest at that time was an exceptionally wicked and corrupt man. So when Christ came, the people were suffering at the hands of uncaring, unscrupulous priests. And they longed for a merciful priest and a faithful priest. When the prophets and the priests and the kings of Israel rebelled against God instead of serving him, God took matters into his own hands. And he came to be our prophet, our priest, and our king. I want you to listen to what Isaiah 59 says. Listen to the state of things and then what God does about it. This is Isaiah 59, 9. Justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light but behold darkness, for brightness but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking and he who turns aside from evil makes himself prey. 
This is the human condition. Even our supposed religious leaders are wicked, corrupt. There is, as Paul says in Romans 3, none righteous, not even one. It always amazes me when people tell me that they turned away from God because they saw some corruption or some wickedness in human beings who were religious leaders. Oh, dear friend, what you see is the reason why Christ alone can save. Why God had to come down to save us because there was no man, no religious leader who could reach up. We all fall short of the glory of God. And the corruption that is been seen throughout history and religious leaders and the wickedness and the scandals and all of that is a reminder that there is no human being who can reach up to God on your behalf. There is only one who can bridge the gap and it's the one who came down, the perfect one. In Isaiah, after it talks about justice being far from us, right? Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Truth is stumbled in the street. Uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil becomes the prey of the oppressors. Now listen to what it says next. Now the Lord saw this, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. So what did he do? Listen. Then his own arm brought salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands he will make recompense so that they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. You see what man couldn't do. There was, God looked and there was no one righteous, no one good. So he says, I will save. I will save. I will come and I will save. Jesus came to this world because the people were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In fact, the ones who were supposed to be shepherds were actually the ones oppressing the people. The high priest, the Sanhedrin. The people needed a merciful and faithful high priest and that's what he came to be. F.F. Bruce puts it this way. Jesus is merciful because through his own sufferings and trials, he can sympathize with ours. He is faithful because he endured to the end without faltering. What a blessing it is to have as our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. I am not your priest. No man is your priest. You have a faithful and merciful priest the highest of them all, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 10 and listen to what it says about the priesthood of Christ. 
Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, now keep in mind, in the old cup before Christ came, people couldn't even set foot in the Holy of Holies. Now it says, Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart. This is good news. There could be in this auditorium or perhaps amongst those you know, those who have suffered at the hands of unscrupulous and uncaring human religious leaders. Direct their attention to the true priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. The eighth reason why Christ came to this world is to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, it says that he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. See, a merciful and faithful high priest is who he is, but then what did he do? Well, he made propitiation for the sins of the people. That's what a priest was supposed to do. To make propitiation means to make a blood sacrifice which appeases the wrath of God against sin. The Bible says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. God's wrath is poured out on evil. And you can argue with that. You can say, oh, I don't think God should have wrath towards evil. Would, would you just pause to think for a moment? You're saying you want God to make peace with evil, to allow wickedness to endure forever. You want the misery of evil to continue forever. You don't want that. You want a holy God who has wrath towards the wickedness which causes death and misery. And God's wrath is poured out. Your problem, my problem, is that we're part of the evil. We are evil and we've done evil. And so God's wrath is justly poured out upon us. Well, to make propitiation means to appease God's wrath, to pay its penalty. Hebrews 9.22 says, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Sometimes people say, well, I'm sure, you know, I've done some good things, some bad things. I'm sure God will just kind of wink at the bad things, accept the good things, and I'm all, all good. No, no, friend, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The cross is your only hope. In the Old Testament, the high priest would make a sacrifice for the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, Jesus is a different kind of priest. The Old Testament priests would take a lamb that the person would bring to them and they would sacrifice it on that person's behalf. When Christ comes, he doesn't offer a lamb, he offers himself. And since as the Son of God, he is infinite, his sacrifice as the Lamb of God 
takes away the sins of the world. And unlike the daily, monthly, and yearly sacrifices of the Old Covenant, Jesus made one sacrifice for all time. Turn over again to Hebrews chapter 10 and listen to verses 11 through 14. It says, speaking of the Old Testament priests, it says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One offering, he perfects for all time. This is why he came, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to make a blood sacrifice which would appease the wrath of God for you and for me. Ninth reason he came was to sympathize with our trials and temptations. To sympathize with our trials and temptations. Back in chapter 2, verse 18 For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He came to sympathize with our trials and temptations. Since he was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to our aid. Notice that verse 18 talks about temptations and suffering. And Jesus experienced both. Jesus suffered. He suffered a hard first bed in that cattle trough. I doubt that the temperature was a comfy 70 degrees in that stable. He began his life with suffering and he endured the hard life of a lowly carpenter living under foreign occupation. During his ministry, he said he had no place to lay his head. And his life ends with being tortured to death by sadistic foreign soldiers. He suffered. He was even called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus also endured temptation. The scripture says that he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. In fact, unlike you, unlike me, he was personally and directly tempted by the devil himself. MacArthur notes, quote, Jesus came not only to save us, but to sympathize with us. Jesus felt everything we will ever feel and more. For example, he felt temptation to a degree that we could not possibly experience. Most of us never know the full degree of resistible temptation simply because we usually succumb long before that degree is reached. But since Jesus never sinned, he took the full measure of every temptation that came to him and he was victorious in every trial. He's saying that 
You and I, we never experience the full power of temptation because as the powers of temptation come, at some point we give in. But Jesus never gave in, and so he endured temptation to its full and conquered it. He was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. And therefore, he is our perfect high priest. He is, as the book of Hebrews is going to say, innocent and undefiled and therefore can lay down his life as the spotless lamb of God. One of the wonders of Christmas is realizing that God truly sympathizes with our trials and with our temptations. Jesus personally endured both our temptations and our sufferings. He walked our soil, he bore our griefs, He was a man of sorrow. He was acquainted with grief. He was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. And so we have a merciful and faithful high priest who understands. He not only has omniscient understanding, he has experiential understanding. Listen to what Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... You want to follow a priest, follow the one who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. It's just marvelous words. I want to read it again. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Tenth reason. He came in order to give aid to those who are tempted to come to our aid, to come to help us. At the end of chapter 2, verse 18, he says, because he's this merciful, faithful high priest who understands us and sympathizes with us, it says he is able. I want to just emphasize those words. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He's able to come to your aid. He's able to come to my aid. You are part of that phrase, those who are tempted. I am part of that phrase, those who are tempted. And he is able to come to our aid. We all experience temptations. We know that we're too weak to overcome them on our own. You know, if we could overcome temptation on our own, at least in theory, we could be perfect. You know you can't do that. I know I can't do that. The reality is, even as the Apostle Paul said, what we don't want to do, we do, and what we want to do, we don't do. This is the human condition. We are tempted, and we don't have the strength to defeat sin and evil in the most important place, which is our own hearts. So is there any hope for overcoming strong temptations? And the answer is yes. Because Christ sent the Holy Spirit to be our helper. 
and we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit who helps us to overcome our temptations. So we never face temptations alone. We never face them on our own strength alone. Jesus, through his indwelling spirit, is there with us. He is there to help us in our hour of need. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This is a reason to rejoice. One of the most wonderful Christmas gifts God gives is that he comes to the aid of those who are tempted. Can you imagine if you could open up a present and, it, and inside it said, help with your temptations. Yeah, no one else can give you that except for Christ. Help with your temptations. Andrew Murray gives wise advice to us as we battle our temptations. Listen to what he says, Andrew Murray. Quote, learn to regard every temptation as the blessed opportunity to trust and rely on the help of your ever-present high priest. Well, as we close, I want to just exhort you to reflect on the incredible gift Christ gave us that first Christmas. Jesus came to our world to bridge the gap between God and man by partaking of our nature, to die for our sins so that we could be saved, to disarm the devil by nullifying his primary weapon, to free the captives of fear, to help those who share Abraham's faith, to become man so he could represent men, to become a merciful and a faithful high priest, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to sympathize with our trials and our temptations, and to come to the aid of those who are tempted. What a gift we have been given. Have you received this gift of salvation by faith. There is a gift and faith opens that gift and the gift is Christ himself. Who he is and what he's done for us. A gift offered to you. Will you receive it by faith? Lord, I pray if there's a soul in this room and I'm certain there are who have yet to open that gift. Lord, may they not turn it away, but Lord, with joy, with gratitude, Lord, with the eagerness of a child, by faith, may they receive this most marvelous of all gifts. Lord, we give gifts as a memory and a commemoration of the greatest gift ever given, which was when you gave your son. We're reminded of that great and famous verse, God so loved the world that he gave he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life for this great gift the gift given to us on that first Christmas so long ago we give you praise glory and honor and it is in Jesus name we pray amen